What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Breaking the Grid, the podcast where we talk about off-grid living, self-sufficiency, and life without society. Last episode, we talked about preparing to leave society. We talked about making a plan, your needs and your wants, acquiring skills through whatever ways possible, and finances. That was a big one. Today is part two of that episode. We are going to pick Dan's brain a little bit more about what he did, the rest of the things that he did leading up to him actually leaving society, and what you can do, what you can learn from him, all the things that he did right and wrong, and you can pick and choose what you want to do when you leave society. Again, this applies to just more than leaving society as a whole. It can be something as simple as just wanting to be more self-sufficient and less reliant on society. Which we know now that is a definite must. Yeah, it is. Before COVID, only the the most craziest people were separating and homesteading and prepping. Now with COVID, everybody knows that anything could happen at any time. When COVID happened, a lot of people were starting to make their own food. Like bread making boomed in popularity. It was so random. And this year, it's all about eggs. Like everyone's getting... Yes. That's the motto for this year. It's all about eggs. It is. Egg fleeching was a huge thing. And every single person I know and their mothers have gotten chickens to lay eggs so they don't have to go to the store and buy the inflated price of eggs. So we're seeing the society shift more and more towards self-sufficiency and relying less on the systems that society has created. So, yeah, it's a, you want to learn about that kind of stuff. This is the podcast for you. Absolutely. So and just a just a note, I didn't know about COVID until about a year into <laughs> it. I had no idea about it at all until pretty much when I met her. I, I didn't even know if COVID was a thing. I don't have news. I don't have social media. I don't own a phone. So I had no contact knowledge of it, mm-hmm. which attests to this works. Mm-hmm. You know, this stuff that we're teaching here. And uh, telling you about works because we do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into it. Cool. Okay, so continuing off from last episode, we are going to talk about the research stage. So research, research, research. We talked about acquiring skills, which is a little bit different than the research stage. Can you explain the difference? Um. Well. Or is it just a continuation of? No, research is. We can research land. We can research um, rainfall for the year in inches. We can research wind and how many days of sun it has. Those aren't acquiring any skills. That's just Mm -hmm. um, letting us know that since we want to do solar power, we want a place that has at least 250 days a year of sunshine. Mm -hmm. And acquiring skills is more like, I need to learn how to use power tools and I need to learn how to weld and gotcha okay so what sort of research did you do before you left society uh how many days of sunshine (laughs) um how many days of wind water rainwater uh we researched growing seasons which zone you're in we researched price of the land um what the taxes were for the land because we weren't going to pay taxes every year so we had to pay off the tax life of the land. We researched the population of that land. What location did you do your research on? 
Okay, so we searched New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado. Um, we looked at Alaska because I had researched, and at the time, Alaska was still homesteading. Mm-hmm. So you could go out there and get free land if you met some stipulations. Of course, we looked all over Mexico because she's from Mexico. Mm-hmm. South America. Wow. So extensive research. It wasn't, oh, I want to live in the desert. Boom, I'm going to go live in the desert. It was, how many, how long did it take you to do all of this research? I mean, we were doing other things at the time. Like I was learning the skills and I was being an assistant to a mason and learning concrete mm. or welding or mechanics. But as we could get out and go places, we were throughout a year period. Okay, I see, I see. So researching is alongside all the other things you were doing. So while you were budgeting, while you were acquiring skills, you were also doing research. Yeah, it all kind of overlapped on top of each other. Okay, gotcha. So there's about four or five different kinds of terrains and biodomes, is that what they're called? Yeah, but uh, biosystems, ecosystems. Can you sort of give us the pros and cons to some of those? Okay, so you have mountainous, desert, rainforest, or uh, tropical. Um, then you have where it's just snow all the time. And then you have the beach, which can be desert beach or tropical beach. Mm-hmm. And some of the pros and cons were up in the mountains, we have to deal with a snow season. Pretty much you're not doing anything for six months out of the year. Mm. You're just snowed in and uh, you're lucky if you can keep livestock, grow plants. So that one was kind of off the table. Land up in Alaska was nice, but we had to have at least a short period of time to gather supplies. And there's just nothing out there. Yeah. We looked into the jungle and tropical places, which were good, but the humidity was a killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 100% humidity every day, and you're just sweating. All your clothes are always wet. Everything's always wet, moldy. And then we finally settled in the desert. But we were in the high desert, which is the low desert. It's, you know, 110 degrees all year round. The high desert, it would get up to late, you know, high 90s, maybe. Uh, We might have some 100-degree days. Most days were 80s. And our winters wow. were 60. There was a lot of other downsides to that, but the temperature was a, was a big one. Yeah. When, when I hear about people living off-grid, I don't hear too often people going into the snow. A lot of times it's people going into a tropical forest where things just grow very easily out there. Like I hear a lot of people going to Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Alaska. A lot of people go to Alaska. Why do you think those are the most... Oh, and Costa Rica. Costa Rica is beautiful. Yeah. And Venezuela, too. Yeah. A lot of people, if they're going to leave the U.S. to go off-grid, I often hear a lot of them talk about Costa Rica. Costa Rica and Venezuela, because they're kind of a drier... They're not as much as rainforest. So, and it's a little cooler. Same with Southern Argentina. Mm -hmm. So you get that tropical benefits, Mm -hmm. but you're not getting the rain all the time. Mm -hmm. And right now, like everybody, if anybody's thinking about moving to Central South America, Venezuela, the land of Venezuela is like dirt cheap because of all the unrest and the, you know, there's government and their economic system collapsed Mm -hmm. and there's lawlessness. And now it's coming back around. Yeah. And I I guess that 
should also be a field of research that you look into, right? Right. What it, their politics are, what the laws and rules are. What the safety, the safety of the it. Safety the safety aspect. The, if you're going to still be going to hospitals, the medical system. Mm -hmm. If it was the medical system, I'd choose Cuba at this point mm -hmm. because Cuba has one of the best medical systems in the world. If it's, you're into nature, Costa Rica, Venezuela. If it's temperature, um, you want a cooler place, Montana, Canada. Gotcha. Like back in the 70s and 60s, everybody was going to Montana because the land was so dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, if, say, for example, someone wanted to go abroad to start their off-grid living journey, how would you go about doing that? Because you have to, you know, get a passport a visa become a citizen all that extra there's extra steps to that so i guess that's why a lot of times i hear people going to tennessee and alabama and georgia as opposed to argentina or something well first off i would say leaving the united states if you want to get from away from society you have to leave the united states in the united states there isn't anywhere anymore that you can go and get away from society. Not even where you went, West Texas? No. It's populated now with laws? It's and... populated now. The law is down there. Oh, There's wow. utilities. And they won't let you leave society in the United States. Oh, okay. I'm um, not completely. That's a little ominous. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get into that more. Yeah. So in the United States, if you want to fully leave society it's really not an option anywhere anymore mm. so if you really want to leave you have to look at countries like india and africa uh, anywhere in africa or south america because their systems are a lot more lenient and you can be away from society and and they're not going to stop you so how do you get into these countries like you said you have to have passport some countries require you have a, a visa some not a lot of the time, expats go to these countries, both Canadian and American expats go to these countries and just come out every year or every other year. So your visa is oh. like for a year or six months or two yeah. years. And they just come out and go to, let's say you're in Guatemala, you come out and go to Mexico and go back in. And then you get a stamp for another year on your visa. And they do that for 20, 50 years. Oh. The whole time, they just go out for the weekend and then come back. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's one way to do it. And then if you want to become a citizen, there's really two ways to do it. One is to buy your way in. So basically there'll be a fee of like $10,000 or something. Mm -hmm. And then you have to maintain a certain amount of money in your bank account. Mm -hmm. So you have to always have 20000 in your bank account. That kind of makes sure that these people aren't just going there and being bums and being a drain on the system, mm -hmm. that they're actually contributing um, financially to the country. I see. The other one is to do what I did, which was marry a <laughs> someone from that country. Yeah. And um, then automatically you you get your citizen. Not automatically. You have, still have to go through all the citizenship right. steps, but it makes it a little easier. Yeah, you're not. You'll be approved. The other thing with that is that in a lot of these countries, you're not allowed. A foreigner is allowed to own land, so you either have to rent land from a citizen of that country, or if you marry someone that is a citizen of that country, she or he can have the land in their name. Mm. Some of the countries, though, like uh, Haiti and a lot of the Caribbean countries, 
they'll let you buy land. Uh, they want you to buy land. A lot of these countries have coffee, big coffee fields and big commerce. So that you, they usually buy land and, and start growing coffee and live mm. off that. Uh, okay, I see. I also want to emphasize there's a difference between lab research and field research, which I think you did a lot of both. Lab research is in a controlled environment where you can repeat the experiment over and over again. And field research is a little bit more spontaneous. You are boots on the ground, interacting with the people, interacting with the elements. And you did that when you went out to West Texas. You scouted out for land, experienced the weather, and took all of that in. We would recommend that everyone does that if you're looking into a certain kind of ecosystem. Go out there and experience it. See how you feel about it. Go out there at the best the peak of the best season and go out there at the worst of the season and sort of feel it out see if you can endure both sides of those elements yeah and then we when we went there and did those things we collected samples that we would later send off to ut or do soil sample tests oh ph samples and ph um consistency of sands um silt clay to know how much clay we had in the ground, how much oh. sand we had in the ground. Um, we took wind measurements. Yeah. Um, although now every, all that stuff's online, like oh, it'll yeah. tell you every location, their average wind for the year. And we did drainage tests for plants. Mm, I see. We need different drainage requirements. Um, right. So yeah, we did, we, we took a lot of tests and then took them back and did to your lab. Oh, um, I see. Stuff from there, send them off to get them done. Okay. Speaking of plants and crops and whatnot, you did a lot of research into that beforehand, or did you have to do the research once you're out there? Can I just sit at a computer and say, oh, peas will grow here, or how do you approach Yeah, if you're that? still connected to the grid, I mean, if you're still connected through internet or phone or whatnot, then yeah, you can do all your research you want out there. The problem is you're living in worse conditions than, than you were before. Mm -hmm typically without air conditioning or heating, and you're trying to do all this work now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's not the time to be doing research. It's the time to be implementing right. the plans that were designed from that research. From the research, So right. if you're doing everything out there, if, if you're just one of these people, and, and most of us are like this, like, I just want to leave society, I want to go now, I'm out. I'm packing yeah. my van and we're going. Then it's going to be a lot rougher road. You're making yeah. it harder for yourself. But if you do all your research and you lay out a plan and check it and do several iterations of it to where you're pretty sure this plan is going to work at this location um, once implemented, and then go out there and find out that it's not going to work and you mm -hmm. have to, you're, you're going to go through that process anyway. You might as well knock out half the work beforehand for sure. Yeah, I agree. But a lot of those things you, you cannot know until you get there. That's what I was going to ask you. Even if you have this extensive research plan, once you go out there, because we experienced that on a smaller dose today, living here, and we're not completely cut off from the grid. Yeah. But even here, we create a design, we have a plan, we've done our research, and then we go out there and try to implement it. And then the first iteration fails. And then the second iteration fails, and the third, and the fourth, and finally on the fifth, it happened. So as much research 
it's obviously research is obviously an important stage to preparation, but even with all the research, it 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 ensures you a better chance of succeeding. Because if we didn't have that research, we would have uh we would have gone through maybe twenty iterations. Before. Sometimes hundreds. Sometimes hundreds yeah. of iterations. There's there's things in my book that are the ninety second iteration of it before I got it right enough to put it in a book and say this is actually going to work. Wow. That research stage will oftentimes get you far enough to where you can uh, succeed on the fifth iteration yeah. as opposed to the hundredth yeah, iter- yeah, absolutely. iteration. Most times it's a less than a dozen mm-hmm. iterations, but you it's going to be a, a quick wake-up call when you say, I can go out there and build a, yeah. a fence or a hydroponic system and you've never done it before. And it's just going to be a big wake-up call because right. you're going to have mistake after mistake after mistake. Right. And we're we're saying this because we don't want anyone to be discouraged. Hey, I put all this energy into researching and I go out there and I implement it and everything failed. It's probably going to fail. Uh, not saying all of the time. Sometimes we get it right on the first iteration. But if you do all this research and you go out there and try to implement it and it doesn't go the way that you want it to go, don't become discouraged. Just- It'll yeah, just know that it's not going to go the way you go, right. the way you want it to go. But it plan will happen. Right, plan for that, and it will happen eventually. Yep. We'll go deeper into the sort of livestock and crops that you researched in later episodes, but keep in mind those are some other things that you would want to look into, which livestock would survive best in the terrain that you chose which ones will produce the best of whatever it is that you need to produce. Like if you want goats that will produce meat, then look at meat goats. If you want goats that will produce milk, then look at milk goats. Or if you want meat chickens as opposed to egg chickens. So there's there's a whole variety of research that goes into that stuff. And even when you research, the, I want a meat goat, that meat goat not, m- might not work in that train or that ecosystem or that temperature range right so there's a lot of fine-tuning and a lot of planning and and working out what's best and the land going back to scouting land the land is the start of all that so you have to find the land that you're going to be in first and then start um, working out from there right yeah but we'll go a little bit more into livestock and crops in a different episode but the research stage is definitely important when you are looking to prepare and leave society. Yeah, absolutely. Once you're done with those steps, though, so you've made a plan, you've acquired the skills, you've saved up enough, and you've done your research, the next step is probably the step that everyone is most excited for, which is quitting. Pulling the trigger. We are quitting society. Yeah, that um, that was a huge leap. And that takes a lot of guts just in itself. It's scary. You're leaving your entire life behind. Yeah. It's not just walking into your office and saying, I quit, which is scary in itself. That is scary. Um, like, what am I going to do for money now? How are yeah. we going to eat? If you have kids, how am I going to feed the kids? So to add on to that, I quit my job. I quit society. I quit everything I've ever known and learned and everything I, I know. And I'm leaving. Yeah. It's a mentality shift. Like you said, everything you've ever learned or know about life, you have to quit that mentality also. Yeah. And so so when we're referring to quitting, we're not just talking about quitting your job and leaving. 
we're talking about quitting your social circles, quitting your habits and your routine, quitting any addictions you have, um, quitting, quitting technolo te technology, technology, grocery stores, entertainment. Right. Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into quitting. If, it, it feels easy to just say I quit, but it's really not. If you've ever struggled with addiction, it's not easy to just quit something. And and pay in mind, we're addicted to this stuff. We are. We're addicted to society, and we depend on it. And yeah. but but that we're we're going the extreme of what I did. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anywhere in between that, it's going to be, you know, you don't have to quit grocery stores. You don't have to quit. Yeah. Your internet or. Yeah, I when I left California, I had to quit a few things, not as extensive as Dan did or as dramatic. Like Dan quit contact with everyone, his mom, his dad, his sister, his friends, everyone. So for me, I'm still in contact with my family, but I did have to quit thinking that I can just always run back to them every single time I needed to. Because before I left California, I was only a few hours away. So if something happened, I can just say, well, I'm going back home and I'm going to be there for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So and I am hundreds of miles away from them now. So I have to quit that mentality of I can always run back to them. And um, something else I had to quit was the gym. I know it sounds very insignificant, but it was such a huge part of my identity. I was a total gym rat. I would go to the gym three hours a day, two times a day. And I was so, I was very addicted to the gym. So when I came here and we live miles and miles away from the closest gym, it was sort of hard for me to see all of that progress that I thought I was making go away or that I didn't have that routine in my life anymore. So it can be something as simple as that. It doesn't have to be as drastic as quitting everything. And you, even though you're quitting those things in society, it doesn't mean that you can't have those things outside of society. Um, there's no rule or law that says when I quit society, I'm not going to have electricity anymore. Mm. I'm not going to have a refrigerator anymore. I'm not going to have a TV anymore. I'm not going to have a Nintendo Switch anymore. Um, I'm not going to have a gym anymore. Mm -hmm. You can have a gym in your place. You can Take your TV and your Nintendo Switch, and um, if you like playing Frisbee golf, you can set up a Frisbee golf course on your property. But the difference is you have to do all those things yourself, yeah. whereas society is doing all those things for you now. Yeah. And that's the, the key. Also, there's a level of quitting. Um, we quit literally day and night. So... One day I was completely immersed in society, working my job. Literally within a day or two later, we were out on the property. Wow. And you can have, you can have a little bit more of a taper off. <laughs> so like start with, I'm going to quit um, going to the grocery store and I'm going to grow all my own food myself. And then I'm going to quit the electrical grid and just have solar panels. And then I'm going to quit shopping and uh, buying things. And then I'm going to quit my job and right. just have a... Um, my own income, doing my own thing. And right. Slowly taper off of it, I think is. It's a little healthier for you because I sort of did what you did. It was just a sudden, all right, well, I'm leaving now, you know, and I didn't have that quitting 
mentality or that phase where I slowly started to taper myself off. And it was it was hard. I went through um, a lot of withdrawals while the first year, I think, when I was here, I went through a lot of withdrawals, like battling with my mentality about leaving all of this stuff, leaving my life behind. It became very the voice in my mind was very loud about returning back to the life that I left behind before. So I wish I would have tapered off a little bit more as opposed to just, I'm gone, you know? Yeah. But there's a, you can get trapped in that too, though. You can, yeah. Like I'm going to, I plan on tapering off. I'm just going to start growing my own food and I'm going to quit going to the grocery store. But then two years later, you find you're growing your own food, but find you're still going to the grocery store. Yeah, that's so true. So if you don't pull that trigger, then it can be a trap too. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you kind of touched on something that was um, important too, is that the more you're in society, the harder it is to leave society mm-hmm. on two aspects. If you live in a city, let's say New York City or something, that you are fully merged in one of the biggest cities of society in the world, as opposed to if you live on a your dad's farm in Oklahoma you've kind of known this your whole life. So separating from the city and society isn't that big of a deal. As opposed to this guy in New York City leaving society would be huge. Yeah. And there's a time value too. So the longer you're in society, the harder it is to leave. Mm -hmm. If I'm 15, 16 years old and my parents say, oh, we're leaving society, it's not that big of a shock. Mm -hmm. Um, I can adjust pretty quick. But if I'm 60 years old and I've worked in the, in the industry for 40 years and I quit my job and leave, there is this, this feeling inside you that you, you have to be doing something. I have to be working. Mm. And you'll often find that people that retire get a second job, mm-hmm. you know, even though they don't have to financially, they're set up for life. And this is what they've been working for, for 40 years mm-hmm. is to not have to work anymore. And I mean, I'd say 80% of retirees go and get another job Mm -hmm. just because it is pre-programmed in them so hard that they have to be doing something every day. They have to be doing something. And when you just sit back and say, I don't need to do anything anymore. It, if there's a battle going on. Right. So for the first, like I said, the longer you're in it, the longer that time is for the first six, eight, nine months, I felt like I needed to be doing something. Yeah, that's funny. That's around the same time. Maybe there's like a, maybe there's some scientific yeah. research behind. Psychological. Yeah, how long it takes. I'm sure there is because we're creatures of habits, you know, and people have studied our habit uh, over decades and decades. So I'm sure there's a time interval there that we need because I didn't start fully accepting the self-sufficiency life until about a year, maybe a year and a, and a few months in. So maybe more like 14 months or so before I was like, this is my life now. And I feel comfortable in this life. And this is how it's going to be. I accept it. But before that, those that year and few months, it was constant battles going on in my brain about I need to be back in the rat race. I need to hustle. I, I'm not setting myself up for that American dream of retiring and not working and whatnot. So it it took me a while before I accepted where I am at. And during that year and a couple of months, I 
could have very easily left. And that's what a lot of people do. They are out there for six months and they're battling with themselves over and over again. And eventually that voice that says, go back, that one wins. So it's important to plan that into your, your blueprints and your plan is that the first year I'm out there, I'm going to want to go back. Yeah. And I just have to push myself to say, just give it 13 months yeah, or give it 16 months or something and see if that feeling sticks around then. Yeah. If it doesn't, then it was, it wasn't real to begin with. Right. But if, um, after 16 months, two years out there, you say, this isn't for me, then, then you can start listening to yourself. Yeah. Then you can definitely pull the plug or replug, I guess, not pull the like, yeah. But put the plug back into the outlet and return to your Cy life before. Cipher back in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But after that allotted amount of time and you feel comfortable and you accept things the way that they are now, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that you'll be okay from there on out. That voice will sort of go away. So you retired at the age of 25? 20, like from job. 28, okay. From your job, you retired at the age of 28. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how was that for you, retiring at such a young age? Did it scare you? You know, I, I think that I never really planned on, first of all, I don't think I ever planned on living to be 80. Um, but I don't think I ever planned on living, to, I mean, working until I was 65. Mm. And that's kind of why I hustled so hard in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because I thought if I can make a couple million dollars before I'm 30, I can chillax and not do anything the rest of my life, live mm -hmm. off that money. So when we thought, hey, what if we just leave society? Then we don't have to make, we don't need any money. Oh, okay. Um, it was kind of an easy choice. It was kind of a, it just kind of makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that was a product of your time though? Nowadays, it's hard to think that a 28-year-old, I'm almost 28, and I'm nowhere close to being able to retire because of how our economics are, because of how our politics and society, all, all that stuff really plays into the retiring opportunity. So do you think because you retired in the late 90s, was mm -hmm. that when you retired? Yeah. And that the late 90s was a different world, different time. Do you think that was a product of your time? Yeah, I think that as you get further and further away from cavemen, you know, you get further and further away from being self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. So, and we see it every day. The new generations are, are completely dependent, which is the opposite of self-sufficient yeah. on everything that society has to offer. It's me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they even like... They have DoorDash bringing the food. Yeah. They don't have to drive. Somebody drives them around. Instant gratification. That's what we want. Yeah. Fast news, fast media, yes. fast. And then not only that, but you don't even have to think for yourself. No. Like somebody tells you what you should eat. You go to the grocery store and there's little arrows telling you where to park. Um, little lines telling you to park here. Little signs that says, yeah. you know, you park here. Um, you go in the grocery store, the doors open automatically for you. Yeah. You don't even have to open the door. Um, all the signs are, are, this is where the food is. You don't have to look for it. Mm -hmm. You bring it up. You don't even have to add it up. The lady adds it up for you. She doesn't even add it up. The, 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 the things, yeah, she scans it and she doesn't have to do anything. They bag it for you. They put it in the car for you. 
um, they, you don't have to do anything anymore. No. As opposed to a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, it, it was far the other way. Um, there was no doors that automatically opened. Um, there was no cars that drove you around. Uh, and as, if, as we go further and further back, it was easier and easier for those people to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And as we go further and further this way, uh, it's harder and harder. Like my dad's generation, my grandpa's generation, I think it was very easy for them to leave society. My generation, it was a little harder. You know, we had pagers. We didn't have cell phones, but mm -hmm. we had pagers and we had um, cars and we had air conditioning. And so I think my generation was probably one of the last generations that it was not a fight to leave society. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to be a fight. In, inner fight and outside fight. Oh, man. It's going to be harder in a lot of ways. But on the other side of that, it's a lot easier in a lot of ways. You know, my grandparents didn't have wind turbines and solar panels. Um, so they didn't have electricity and air conditioning. We had solar panels, wind turbines. We had blenders that blended us up margaritas from fruit and alcohol that we made right there on the homestead. Yeah, and you also didn't have the educational material that taught you how to do these things. Right, you have all that now. Yeah, like you have you have us. Yeah, there's there's yeah. podcasts out there. There's books. There's YouTube videos that we can easily easily access, as opposed to you and your dad, your generations. You guys sort of had to just Rough figure it. that. Yeah, yeah, figure it out. So, so speaking about generations and age and whatnot, do you think we kind of touched on this a little bit, like ten minutes ago or so? But do you think there is an age limit for off-grid living? Maybe if you're in your 70s or 80s, it would be near impossible to do it. Like I mean, this I've, is a young man's game. I've seen some 70 and 80-year-olds that are fit and can do anything and do do anything. You know, they're mm -hmm. out there climbing Everest, literally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're traveling the world, going through the Amazon. And um, so there's definitely some exceptions to the rule. But I think that I wouldn't say it's a young man's game because 18, 19, 20, 21, you wouldn't have the knowledge built yet or the experience built. So I'd say late 20s, 30s. Um, That's like optimal. prime. Okay. Yeah. You've set, if you start when you're 18, 19, 20, start setting up all these mm. and researching all these things and you're ready to go at, I'm not saying start at 30 because oh. then you're going to be 40, 50 out there. Yeah. Um, but if you have everything ready by the time you're in your late twenties, early thirties, right. I think that's the optimal time to go. And physically you're more fit. Yeah. I, I have more muscle when I was 28 and 30 than when I was 18. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that point. So you're saying it's not impossible. It'll, will it be harder in your 70s and your 80s? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, everything out there is physical. Yeah. Um, there's no, there's nothing out there that's, that's, that's not physical. Uh-huh. Even setting up some of the automatic systems that remove the physicality element from it are physical. Right. To set them up. So right. you can't hire a, a mechanic to come out and fix your truck. You can't hire an electrician to come out and install your electrical boxes. Right. Every second of every day is a fight. It's a, it's an effort. Right. Until you can set all those things up to where it's a lot easier. Right. I worked harder being out retiring than I did not retiring. <laughs> I had a physically easier life working than I did when I retired. Mm -hmm. As you get older, 
it's going to become harder and harder. Right, but it's not impossible. We're not trying to no. discourage. If you're in your 70s or 80s, by no means is it impossible. It, but you want to, again, calculate that into your plan. It will be hard for you to lift certain things or for you to pull certain things. So maybe recruit your uh, grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, and and we, there's other options like commune. Yes. Potential communities. Absolutely. Which is actually what we're going to go into pretty soon. We will have an episode about setting up systems. Uh, I know that you, once you actually left society, you were still in the preparation stage for about two, a year and a half, two years or so. And that preparation stage is more setting up systems and establishing your land so that you can be completely sustain all your systems will be sustainable and it'll make things a lot easier for you so we'll have an episode specifically about establishing systems and what that does and what that means so other options you're starting to get into that so like communes what else what else is um, out there communes we looked into just getting a boat a sailboat or something and just sailing around the ocean around the planet you can be completely self-sufficient on a sailboat. What? They have their own electrical systems. They have wind turbines. They have. Wow. Yeah. And it's just a little mini house, kind of like a water camper or water RV. Wow. And you can uh, grow food and. Grow your food and. Uh, fish. And... Fish. And you, you're not using any gasoline. You're just, the wind is blowing you around the planet. Wow. The transportation's free. That's cool. Um, or you could port in somewhere and plug in and just live in your boat, though. So you're not paying rent, and but you're still getting groceries and yeah. just live in a port. Mm -hmm. um, there's some places like in Northern California and Oregon around Portland, Washington, Alaska, that you can actually anchor your boat and kind of live like a homeless person. So, like, you know how in, like, Sacramento and places you can live on public land? Yeah. And they don't really kick you out? Right. Or they right. do and you come back? Yeah. There's you know? a huge homeless population in California, but the West Coast, too. It goes all up the West Coast. Right. So, but you're allowed pretty much, especially in California, you are actually allowed to sleep yeah. in a park or yeah. any, anywhere you want. You, you can live be, there. Yeah. You'll be protected by the law, definitely. Yeah. And a lot of these homeless people... Um, aren't actually homeless. They're like students or they have <laughs> jobs. It's just that they don't want to pay rent or rent in California is way too expensive. Yeah, it's so expensive. And they ha they choose to live this way. I mean, they're not wearing, they're wearing the nice shirts and the new shoes and brand That's name true. clothes and got the phone and probably even have a car. That's you know? true. And uh, Yeah. In my college, um, there was a huge, there's a documentary about that on YouTube. It's called Humboldt State's uh, homeless student population or something and it talks about the homeless students who are attending school but cannot afford rent uh, they don't have enough dormitories to house these students and these students are living in their cars living in campers sharing a van together and, and it's all legal technically you know and then we went to that little town up in uh... oh that was in North Carolina Asheville. Asheville. Yeah. Where it's a college town too. Yeah, it's a college town. And there's a lot, like, I don't think there's any homeless people in that town at all. Um, all as you, the, yeah. As a viewer would think of a homeless person. Oh my gosh. But yeah. 
there's people sleeping in the streets and sleeping in tents and stuff. And they're just young kids going to school. Yeah. And it's just so much cheaper to sleep in a tent outside. And the weather's nice all year round. Yeah. And they keep their streets really clean yeah. for everyone. And there's a lot of benches available. And yeah, we saw like the coolest homeless population. The hippest. They were like hipsters. They and... were so cool. They had like skateboards and yeah. they had a little guitar with them. Yeah. And just super cool. They're wearing like brand name stuff. And then we're like, all right, cool. Um, well, I'll talk to you later. And then they'll be like, all right, well, I'm going to go take a nap now. And then yeah. he goes and sleeps at the bench. Yeah. Like that was closest to him. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is going on here? So that's an option. Yeah. But I, I, I meant like you could park your sailboat and dock it. I mean, not dock it, but anchor it in some of these rivers or bays. And there's people living out there. There's actually like boat cities where they're all kind of anchored together and tied off to each other and it's a community of people just living in the san francisco bay mm. there's a big one in the san francisco bay and some of these boats like become derelict and abandoned mm. and the i think it's the fire department or the coast guard goes in and pulls these decaying boats off of this little community i see so yeah you could just live in a sailboat and, yeah. and be in portland or you know be in uh, San Francisco and just take your little dinghy into work every day or, yeah. or just live out there completely. Obviously, these aren't cheap communities to be a part of. We tried applying for one in Portland, I think. No, no, it was in Northern California. We tried applying for one in Northern California and it was, it, it, it was, we were on a wait list. So we had to wait for, because obviously a marina, a port, very small, limited uh, yeah, real estate. So we were put onto a wait list and there was already maybe 50 people on there. But the wait list is a lifetime wait list. Mm -hmm. So we have to wait until these people either die. Mm -hmm. And these people were maybe in their 40s. early 50s. Yeah, 50s. yeah, exactly. So that means we'd have to wait another maybe 50 years. <laughs> for one person. For one up. person and for us to move up the spot. Yeah. So. It, it it is definitely an option, but that's but, it, but that's in ports. What I'm talking about is almost illegal. Is that they're out in the in the middle of the bay? Oh, or they're out in the middle of the river in Portland. Okay, and there's no technical law that says you can't like in a boat. You can go or be in a lake somewhere. Let's say Lake Mead in Nevada. Yeah, you. I have my boat. I put it in the ramp. I go out in the middle of the lake. I can anchor and spend the night there. Mm -hmm. I, I'm spending, I'm spending two nights. It's, it's uh 4th of July weekend. I'm going to spend the weekend out in my boat on Lake Mead. That's the logic behind why you're allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. But these people live out there in the middle of Lake Mead okay. or they live out there in the middle of the Portland River. Okay. I see. We are not legal advisors. Yeah. <laughs> so please do your research. If you need a permit, please get a permit. Yeah. Don't, don't, and they don't sue us. <laughs> they kind of go in there and, and like get them out and yeah. then everybody comes back in again. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so there's ways to hack the system is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they they, they don't really do anything to these people. There's some documentaries on that too. Mm, gotcha. Um, and then we we are big on communes. You've built two or three down in South America and in Vegas. So we're pretty big on if you just want to sort of feel this out, this lifestyle, we would recommend that you start looking into one of those programs or a commune that will help you 
get your foot in the door if you want to feel what it feels like. Yeah, and these aren't communes the way Hollywood produces oh. it or the way you've seen it on TV. These aren't like... It's not a cult. Yeah, it's not a Waco thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. These are more like hippie communes that get together. But there's no, there's not a hippie aspect to it anymore. Right. There's not the free love spirit, you know, open sex thing. It's just kind of a... No it's more like a neighborhood, actually. Yeah. It's a neighborhood of neighbors and friends and sometimes friends of family right. that cohabitate together to ease financial burdens, to ease physical burdens, to ease societal burdens. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I mean, it makes sense because everybody on your block right now owns a lawnmower and half the people on your block have a in-ground swimming pool and everybody in our block has a power drill. You know, you don't need 50 swimming pools. You don't need 50 home gyms. You don't need 50 home theaters. When you have 50 people and one home gym, everybody gets a turn on it. And mm -hmm. you have the, the um, garden, one garden for everybody. And I have one drill and everybody gets to use it. It's just, you know, it's insane that we all have our own set of these things. Right. But Walmart and Home Depot don't want you to know that. Right. They don't want you to come together and share. And you don't even need to live together. Like you can just have a, a tool share program in your neighborhood. Where people, you know, go and borrow the lawnmower, go and borrow a hammer. But but Home Depot, Walmart says, you need to be better than the Joneses. You have to have a better lawnmower than they do. You have to have a better barbecue pit than they do. You have to have a nicer swimming pool than they do. And that's how they become trillionaires. And is because they've taught you that you have to have your own, not only your own set of this, but a better set and a new set every year. Yeah, that's the capitalist mindset for you. It's yeah. not a very it. We don't live in a communal, a yeah, a communal society. No. We don't encourage that mentality of community. It's very individualistic and capitalistic. Yeah, exactly. So i I would recommend going to intentionalcommunities.org or I think it's ic.org. Yeah. That's a great start if you want to at least familiarize with what these intentional communities are all about there's people from as little as you know we live in an apartment but we have tools that we want to share would you like to be part of this intentional community or as far as this is a, a whole society that they've created and we're 100 percent self-sufficient yeah we're completely self-sufficient and we're looking for new members and if there's a a big filtering and vetting system so it's not just we take anybody. Yeah, it's not just we take anybody kind of thing. So if you're worried about, you know, the safety behind it or the uh, Hollywood perception of this being a weird situation, a lot of these communities have very highly vetted systems. And you often go in as a visitor. contributing visitor or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and you go there and you, it's sort of like a interning period, a probation period where you're there for a couple of months, see how you like it, see if they like you. And then once you pass that stage, you can then join the commune. Other programs I would recommend that are not necessarily communes. It's called WOLF, Worldwide Organization of Farms, I think. It's more like Oh, what is it called? Like a couch surfing type of deal. You go 
abroad. It's all over the world. I think it's in 210 countries. And you go... And just work there. Yeah, you work at someone's farm. That's mm -hmm. it. And there might be other volunteers there. It might be a huge family. It might be even a shared community farm. But you get your hands in the ground, your boots on the ground. And that's a good way to learn these skills that we were talking about. Right. Is to wolf first. Yeah. And learn how to farm, learn how to weld, learn how to do auto mechanics. Yeah, exactly. Something else you can do if you want to learn those skills is um, become a gopher. Gophers usually exist in just the trades field. So like hands-on tools, trades fields like construction and welding. And what that is, is it's a position that is not paid. It's more like a volunteering position. And you go in there and you do small tasks in the office or on the field. And over time, these people, you, you pick up skills over time. Eventually, if you're just looking for a job, this might be a good way to get your foot into the door. Eventually, if they like you and they see that you're picking up and you're a good learner and you're consistent, they will most likely hire you. But if you don't want to get hired, you just go in and ask them, hey, can I be a gopher for you guys? Do you know why they call them gophers? Uh, I, does it have something to do with the animals? No. No? It has nothing to do with the gopher animal? Uh -huh. I don't know why, why they call them it's gophers. It's literal. What? It's literal. The oh. name is literal. You get hired into, or you, you volunteer into this program. And let's say I'm, I'm a mechanic. Right. Um, I need someone to gopher things for me. To gopher oh, things for me. Go for. Yeah, go, go for a wrench. Go for a socket. Go for a wire. Go give me a drink. Go get me. Uh, so the, oh. the gopher is always going for things for people. And he, it won't just be one mechanic. Let's say you're in a big auto shop and you got six bays. And he's, or 12 bays, he's going for things for all these mechanics. So they don't have to get out from underneath this and go for a nut all the time. <laughs> and, and like I said, it's a good way to learn what size nuts are. Like I can look at a 516, 18 uh, thread, TPI thread nut and say, this is a 516, 18 TPI thread nut that's galvanized. Or yeah. he says, go for an open end, um, 916 box wrench yeah and i learn what these things are needle nose pliers yeah. or, um so you learn it's a great way to learn all these things yeah i'm his gopher but yeah she's my gopher <laughs> or they'll say hey hold this for me while i tighten this you know right yeah and you pick up a lot of skills like i picked up a lot of skills just running to his tool cabinet and then picking it up for understanding what these tools are and then giving it to him and yeah if he needs me to you know attach something to something something very easy that I can do. That's something that I learned how to do that day. So it's definitely something that is a s sort of, not enough people go in there, which which makes sense. You go into a job expecting to get paid. You know, yeah, especially not, people now. Right, not expecting to just gain skills. Yeah. But that opportunity is out there for you. Um, and then the, one of the last options I'm assuming is seasteading, which is, which is kind of like, Living on a sailboat. Yeah. Um, what we did in the Seasteading Institute was design, well, specifically my task was to design the self-sufficiency elements of it. So the hydroponic systems, the aquaponic systems, bee boxes and honey and, um, but they had the waste management people and they had photovoltaics people that designed that. They had the structural engineers that would design the structure of it. Is it going to be octagons? or triangles put together. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, this place just 
floats out in the middle of international waters and anchored and uh, people live out there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what we did at Sea Study Institute. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just like sailboats, but mm -hmm. a bunch of sailboats together. Mm -hmm. And we actually, what we were, uh, one of the options was we were going to buy a decommissioned cruise liner. So like, you know, these big cruise boats that have like, you can put a thousand people on them. Yeah. That's actually becoming a more popular thing nowadays. Really? Yeah. Cruise liners? Do you yeah. all live on the cruise liner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Humboldt County to accommodate for the population of homeless students, they've, they've started a plan in the motions, mm -hmm. getting a cruise liner into the ports. And just port it there and everybody lives in it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so crazy that that's it's picking up now. Yeah, we we looked into that and just having a cruise liner anchored out there. And wow. you already have, you don't have to build anything. No. You know, you have all your rooms, you have your kitchen facility, you have your indoor gym, you have yeah. a swimming pool, you have a movie theater, and that was another option. Another option that is starting to also gain traction is um, the van life. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, get a van, deck it out with a bed and yeah um tables and microwave and sink and that's huge now septic tank and just um travel around yeah especially an electric van where you don't have to pay for the gas yeah um yeah you're all but free that's uh, a huge huge niche that my generation has started to populate but um it yeah go ahead younger oh yeah but um the the van life is definitely something that's a little bit, I think, glamorized with all of the uh, social media influences. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to live in a tiny little space. Like, <laughs> yeah, it is hard. Yeah, um, but it's definitely an option, and obviously, a lot of people are, are are doing it. I would almost even suggest being part of a church. I was a part of a church growing up. Some people call it a, a cult. It was a pretty hardcore church. Yeah, I, it's. Pretty much a cult. People always say that. It's yeah. weird because I, I never considered it a cult. But then once I start explaining it to other people like you and my roommates and my friends, they're like, uh, Julia, you were part of a cult. Yeah. <laughs> well, cult people inside of a cult don't think, they don't call themselves cult members. No, we don't. Yeah, exactly. We don't. I never saw it as a cult. Yeah. It's only when other people look at it from the outside, they're like, yeah, that was a cult. Or, or you could join a cult. Or <laughs> that's that? another option. Hey, and you can. Apparently, I was a part of a cult. Yeah, you it's, can <laughs> worship Steve, the think... the cult leader, and everything is great. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but my my church cult. Uh, I'm just gonna call it a church because yeah, there's no reason to disrespect yeah, them. They they were. I, I didn't come out of it with any traumas or anything, so I. And for a lot of it, it was very beneficial for me. And I still, I'm still in contact with a lot of those people and they are very near and dear to me. So I'm not going to call them a cult. cult. And cult, I mean, it's just like everything else. Cults get a bad name. Yeah. Literally, they're called cults. Um, but 90% of these cults out there are harmless. And yeah. they're just, they have a different belief system than your mainstream Christians or something. Yeah. But I'm sure lots of people around the world look at these mainstream hardcore Christians, especially down here in the Bible Belt. Like, you guys are yeah, a bunch of cults. Yeah, you guys are cults. Yes, so. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, but they they weren't necessarily off-grid or self-sufficient, that community I was a part of, but they had a very strong sense of community and they had their own society going with within the normal society. They had an organization and uh, there were people who filled those positions. Um, so it's definitely something that if you want to get that sense of community, um, joining a, a church, even if you're not religious, is a good way to sort of yeah. immerse yourself in that. Uh, and my family was also very attached to their traditional roots. My culture is a farmer's culture. And my parents were rice farmer and my parents' parents were rice farmers. They lived in the hills of Laos and Vietnam and um, they were very in touch with nature and understanding how things outside of normal modern society worked. So if you can just even get yourself into um, it's called enclaves. Uh, it's a cultural neighborhood inside of a modern neighborhood. And that was sort of, we had a lot of those in Sacramento. There there would be a neighborhood that was geared towards my culture. And they almost ran that neighborhood like a little village. And you will find that there, there's a lot, like there's a big Jewish, there's a big Jewish neighborhood in in New York. And they're very, like, traditional. And there's Amish neighborhoods mm -hmm. and communities in Midwest. And so there's, if you want to get into that, but you don't, you don't want to move to Nebraska to join a community or move to Northern California to be part of a marina port or whatever, um, go look within your own neighborhood. You know, you, you never know what you can find. There's a lot of cultures that have created their own society in your own neighborhood. So Yeah, you don't have to even move out of your own neighborhood. Yeah, you don't have to move out. You can join the community garden and you can sort of just learn what it feels like to live outside of society. So there's a lot of options for you guys. Another, I think the I just re remember another option. And all these options are in my book, um, plus more. But um, the RV, you know, living in an RV. Just oh. lived in a, a an RV a neighborhood. No, just a camper. Oh, lived in a camper, your RV, and you buy a year long or a lifetime national parks membership, mm -hmm. and you go and park your RV in a national park. Um, let's say Fleming Gorge, and sometimes there's the maximum time limits that you have to stay in these places, like thirty days or ninety days or something. Right. Um, but all you have to do is go out and come back in, or go to another national park. And then come back in or go to another national park and then another one and just kind of stay in all these national parks. And um, it's it's cheap. Or if you're a vet, it's completely free. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, so throw a couple of solar panels on top of your RV. RVs, not, not to be we don't notice this, but our recreational vehicles were the original um, mini, ha what, mini house. So it was tiny houses? Tiny houses. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you look at a tiny house... And then you look at some of the original RVs, the pictures yeah. are identical. Oh. They literally like made little houses on these trailers and they called them RVs. That was like in the 1930s, oh, 20s wow. and stuff. So it's gone a long way and RVs have become very lightweight. They have um, 12 volt systems in them. And so if you ha take the tiny house and give it a hundred years, it'll turn into the RV. <laughs> so it's like, you aren't inventing this. It was already invented. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. RV life, living in an RV in, in different national parks, which is beautiful scenery. 
wake yeah. up every morning and you look at the Grand Canyon. Um, so yeah, that's another option. Yeah. Lots of options. Yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of options out there for you guys. So if you want to just sort of, you know, get a taste of what it feels like to live to live outside of society, there's a lot of options out there for you guys. So let's recap today's episode. So things er, what you have to do to prepare yourself to leave society or become more self-sufficient whatever it is that you want to do make a plan rough outline of your needs and your wants and how you plan on achieving it then you want to acquire skills volunteer take classes read books youtube videos listen to podcasts whatever finances right and then there's finances so you start with your saving and your budgeting Sell your stuff or in Dan's case, burn all of your stuff. Burn it. Yes. Burn them in a fire. That is a must. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number four, do your research, lab research, field research, whatever it is. Go scout your land, make a trip there, uh, research different kinds of terrains, livestock, crops, whatever it is that you need to do. And, and then, then we get to quit. Yes. And then we get to quit. Quit, quit, quit. That's the, the icing on the cake. That's what we're going for here. Right. That's the whole... Uh... The whole point behind all this is to quit. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, those are the preparation stages pretty much to the point right before you leave society. And obviously, the other options and stuff, they can come before or after. And all of these steps are sort of, like you were saying, they kind of overlap themselves. Mm -hmm. And they, the preparation stage may take months to even years to prepare Mm -hmm. to leave. So... If you have thought about this stuff, I would suggest at least making your plan a rough outline today or as soon as you can. Yeah. And there's a lot of elements here that we haven't touched on just because they didn't affect me. I outlined some of them in my book, but there's other things that you might have to prepare for and put into your list, like learn about homeschooling your children. Uh, oh. because now you are the, the, the teacher and what activities they need to be so that you keep them physically healthy and what preparations you need to make for your pets, you know, your religion, a lot of things that didn't affect me and I didn't have to deal with. Right. You guys will have to deal with. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, so again, this is just what Dan did. These are the steps that Dan took. And obviously, you can take them and adjust them to your unique circumstances. But yeah, any final thoughts? If this is interesting to you, and if you've been toying with this idea for a while, do it. Just go for it. Do the steps and be smart about it. But a lot of us think that we can't do that. Mm. Uh, all Those people can do that, but I could never do that. Yeah. Um, the thing is, those people are you, and you're those people. You're the same people, you know, people have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. They've been self-sufficient. There's no reason why you can't do what everybody else can do. Right. Um, Unless there's a physical reason that you can't do it. Um, At which case you might have to rethink it. Yeah. Um, Like if you're like maybe handicapped and and stuck to a wheelchair, but I would argue that even they can do it. Yeah, absolutely. They can do anything we can do. Absolutely. I agree. So yeah, do it. That's my final thought. (laughs) You heard it here first. Do it. (laughs) So thank you guys so much for tuning in for this two-part episode. If you haven't seen the first part, go watch the first part. And next week's episode, we have a very special guest. Drumroll. 
Um, it's going to be Dan's mom. So we will explore the side of the story that often isn't heard of. Uh, we focus a lot on the person leaving society, but we don't ever talk about the people that they leave behind. So next week will be a, a very interesting and eye-opening episode for everyone. Hearing her, her view of it, her side of the story. Exactly. Exactly. So check it out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Be sure to pick up a copy of my book, Breaking the Grid at famous.com link below. And of course, please like subscribe and share.